Hello and welcome to the Partnership Projects NVR podcast. This is season three, episode nine, Peter. My name is Sheila Desai. Hi, and I'm Peter Jacob. And I think today we've got a really, um, really interesting topic, um, thinking about um, an addition. I think the last episode was about kind of additions to the current kind of developments in MVR. And I think we have another addition in terms of the the needs of the young person that are hidden, um, that are lost in the kind of battles um, and I'm kind of hesitating with using the language of unmet needs. Um, and I, I wonder, Peter, if you would say a little bit about this um, topic for us today and for our listeners. Maybe a reminder for our listeners as well of kind of the original thinking and then some of your newer ideas. Okay, well, I will turn the question on to you in a moment. <laughs> But I thought it was so beautifully put the way you encapsulated um, looking at needs as being hidden, obscured, overshadowed, whatever term we want to use by the battle. So we don't necessarily need to assume that any and every aggressive act is the result of a need which is not articulated or cannot be articulated or is not met. Um, But we can safely assume that the needs are hidden when there is very much conflict and tension, Uh, particularly when parents or other caregivers see aggression, hear aggression, feel aggression, or other harmful behaviors they don't actually see or hear the need and actually the child's behavior in many ways is threatening or upsetting to them. So it is a struggle to find in themselves um, attention to these needs, attunement to the child, attunement to what lies behind or is hidden by the problem. And so I, many years ago, I formulated three areas. I did call them unmet need. In uh, many children and young people who've had um, who, who've had traumatic experiences, who'd experienced abuse uh, and so forth. Um, but the reason I formulated it as unmet need at the time was that I thought that Addressing need becomes interactional, of course. It is not just something in the mind of the young person. And based on experience of working with uh, particularly children in care, but also children in families, in, in the birth families that were facing many challenges, I no longer use the term multi-stressed families, which is still quite common in systemic Uh, work, Um, I I sort of identified four categories, and and I'm I'm aware of the fact that when we identify categories, it's paradigmatic. You know, it's it's like we say, this is a thing. Mm -hmm. Any further investigation of that, whether it's in research or 
clinical investigation. It becomes based on those underlying assumptions. And um, there are four that I identified, um, one being safety and security, which of course encompasses the need to feel safe in relationships, in other words, what attachment theory addresses, but also the need to feel safe from actual physical, sexual, emotional harm, uh, which is addressed in trauma theory. Um, a need for autonomy, which encompasses um, the ability to um, make decisions in one's own life, not just the freedom, you know, of course, in an, on, in an age-appropriate way, not just the freedom, but the ability. Um, the, the, um, the competence that is required, the sense of accomplishment, whether it is in work, studying, play, relationships, all this, um, and self-determination theory, um, is an area of research that investigates uh, the need for autonomy, but also the, uh, the prerequisites of an autonomy very thoroughly. Then I think based on Rudy Dallas and Aline Viteri's work, uh, I became very uh, interested in a, a third, or conceptualizing a third category which is the need for um, a coherent narrative of the family and oneself, but one also that on the content level, so not only that shows coherence in terms of a story or narrative structure, but also that is sufficiently benign, in which... Um, the child themselves also has agency in the story, feel, or in the narrative rather, feels worth being loved, and so forth. Um, and, you know, such, such uh, needs are really um, the kind of, or such categories of needs are what has sort of organized my thinking until in a recent conversation, you sort of threw up, we were talking about training in child-focused work in NVR, you threw up and the need for justice. And, um, you know, for a moment, uh, I felt a bit uh, discombobulated. <laughs> I thought, oh, God, you know, here I have this nice structure <laughs> and now something new. But I could only have felt discombobulated because somewhere inside I knew that this hits a mark. So I, I was curious um, and here's where I want to put the question back to you. Uh, I was curious about how you came to think of that or how you believe you came to think of that. I think um, 
the idea of justice seeking has become quite a key movement in our therapeutic um, kind of ideology. You know, some of the therapeutic um, um, practitioners, the sort of liber- liberation psychology, the justice that just therapies in New Zealand, um, some of the justice seeking practitioners in more indigenous communities, and I think what it's kind of awakened in me is this you know this 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 kind of what's behind the anger you know that what's behind um what is that need that's behind and that rage that justified rage is around a sense of voicelessness Mm. a sense of lack of power even if you are perceived as an aggressor, that there is a sense of injustice and bringing voice to that, to that justice. Um, and I think one of the other things in my practice, in training, in supervision, is seeing very well-meaning um, practitioners almost being um, too understanding of suffering. So two understanding of parent suffering, two understanding of trying to get the parent to understand that the child is distressed. And what I think that does is it almost um, kind of squashes down, suppresses, shuts down what I think is um, the right for justice, which is, I think, the origin. You know, that's why I love our MVR philosophies and their roots of those is is that activism so i think that's 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 i think what's what's been awakened in me and i'm so pleased that you're thinking of that as another category and you've been giving that a lot of thought when i think about some of the different fields in which mvr is being used you know thinking about um unaccompanied minors children unaccompanied children and some of the the behaviours that are seen as problematic, um, and that these children have been displaced from their homes. Where is the voice of injustice, or the voice of justice seeking? So I, I guess that's um, that's that's where it, I think it's it comes from. And I, I really appreciate your honing of thinking about the child's need for justice. Not the parents' need or the services, but what's what's that need for the the child or the young person? So you've been inspired both by the increasingly powerful, I'll call it justice discourse in systemic thinking, um, and by by questions uh, around how that connects with the original sociopolitical mm-hmm. ideas in NVR and the actual suffering that some of the kids uh, that wh- whose families or residential services or foster homes we work with have experienced Well, what I thought was intriguing when you brought that up was that while it has been a concern of mine for several years, 
um, I never named it as a category of need. So the injustice that the child has experienced has been a concern of mine going way back to when I first started working with NVR because I ex I think NVR has, like most therapies, many elephants in the room. And this incidentally is what I'm exploring more and more. What are our own blind spots in NVR? And what are the reasons we have these blind spots? Uh, you, you just said that uh, therapists can be too, what was the word that you use? Understanding. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I sort of thought at the back of my head and accepting and perhaps tolerating inadvertently of injustice. And I, mm -hmm. and I think something about my clientele, uh, way back when I was working uh, in an area with very high levels of socioeconomic deprivation, struck me as being important. These were kids who grew up in, let's use the word, poverty, uh, who experienced a lot of insecurity <clears throat> in the environment, in the neighborhood, um, whose schools were not so good, and may have, well, often also experienced a lot of insecurity uh, and often abuse within their families, uh, who were, who, who'd had many foster placement breakdowns, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I sort of felt, wait a minute, we're looking at the child controlling the parents or carers, rightly so, you know, the child exerting coercive control often by virtue of their behavior, harming others and in the process harming themselves because, of course, it becomes a detriment to their own development. But what about what's happened to these children? And what role does it play? And then I, I also much later... Uh, you and your colleagues in Birmingham looked at the numbers of uh, children with high ACEs in uh, your referrals for uh, NVR. And I can't remember how many there were, but they were like 40, 50 percent. Very, very staggering high number. So uh, it, it, it all just seemed to me uh, to be an injustice, which actually led to the whole idea of child-focused NVR in conjunction with some dissatisfaction that I felt with some other approaches around that seemed to instrumentalize parents and didn't actually seem to work very well, particularly with kids who were prone to physical aggression and such. But this particular aspect of injustice that the child experienced, I put all that into the category of safety and security. Mm -hmm. That I was, my thinking was there needs to be an acknowledgement 
and maybe other steps, maybe restorative uh, action, maybe reparation of some kind to the child to restore a sense of safety. But ever since your remark, I've been thinking that the need for justice is something different mm-hmm. from just the need to feel safe, though perhaps both needs come into play. And I just wonder, what is it that I never formulated the need for justice? What, you know, with such an elephant in the room, I think this is a big elephant in the room of NVR, including in the space in NVR that I've developed. Mm-hmm. Why was it that I hadn't articulated that or actually conceptualized that? When all that uh, social justice discourse, as well in, in systemic thinking, I'm so familiar with and feel so at home in. So I'm, I'm just puzzled. I guess one of the things, as you're talking, I'm thinking about for practitioners as they're thinking of these different categories, that if we if we miscue, miscue the need as a need for safety and security, and you use the word acknowledgement, then what that does is for practitioners, they may say things like, oh, yeah, that's really hard. I'm really sorry that's happened to you, you know, and you know, it was really important that you felt safe and you didn't, you know, that kind of language, that Mm. sort of very child-centred. Whereas if we locate the need within within a place of justice for the young person, you know, the way that we will will interact, because you talked about that kind of interaction as as a way of moving towards, um, you know, to change, our interactions with the young person would be, what do we need to do about this? What is it that's important that you're able to to say or do? And as you were describing this sort of um, blind spot, um, I was thinking of a, a young person, young a young person that I've been working with who had who 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 was in a residential. Um, um, unit. He was living in a residential home, and he was, you know, he messed, he trashed the place. He was dismissive to staff. He would go out, and nobody would know where he was. And we were working with some of those within a, a kind of the residential staff raising their presence. But what in the work I was doing with this young lad, one of the things that he was saying was. When I was unwell, when I injured myself and I couldn't look after myself and I came out of hospital and I came back, they didn't welcome me properly. And that's why I threw this and that and the other. He didn't, he didn't put the two together, but we were able to. Now, if I had said, oh, I'm really sorry, oh, that's really horrible, oh, no, what you needed was X, Y, and Z. You needed them to look after you. You needed them to notice, you know, which is within the, the safety. But, you know, I I saw that, and I, I didn't realise it at the time, but I saw it within the category of justice and really worked with this young boy. It, 
coaching. We did a lot of walking, not in a room, walking together, coaching him to imagine the kind of conversation he would need to have with one of the staff members about that moment when he wasn't welcomed. What was that like for him? And he was able to speak to that, to that staff member with me witnessing and just kind of touching his knee and sort of saying, come on, you can do this. When he would look at me to fill in the gaps, I'd be like, no, 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 this is yours. And he was, and that made such a difference to that relationship with that staff member. And of course, you became that young man's NVR coach Mm. that worked. Because in NVR, we don't place as much importance on the therapist-client relationship as we do on relationships in the ecological environment of the client. And we become facilitators. We are decentered much more, aren't we? Uh, I I remember one time I, I did a seminar for students on narrative therapy, and I talked about, I, I, I messed up the whole seminar because I told the students that were not really important, <laughs> that, that uh, in clients' lives, you know, and that, you know, when we've done our work, they say, thank you, it was great, lovely, uh, goodbye, farewell, <laughs> hope never to see you again. <laughs> uh, and that our role often, in at least from the point of view of systemic work, is to from a more decentered position to facilitate those changes in the natural environment. And I guess also, I mean, often in NVR, we don't actually see the young person. Mm. So it becomes Mm. our task to, I think, invite the adult to initiate a process of justice. And I think what you've also indicated, I think you said what he would like to hear or needs to hear from the staff, a particular member of staff. And ultimately, he told that member of staff. In other words, well, one word, there could be he challenged the member of staff to take a different position. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of, well, the word that came to my mind, and this is a difficult word because it becomes so much a question of our ethics, doesn't it? The word that came to my mind was should. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're looking at justice, what do you feel that member of staff should do? And I'm, I'm currently, I'm, I'm reading up about, uh, I'm reading up on different justice theories, and I've come across someone whose work I really love uh, called Iris Marion Young, who was a political philosopher um, and ethicist. And I, I thought I made a distinction, but she made that, of course, and elaborated and developed it 30 years before. <laughs> so much for thinking about an original thought. Uh, the distinction is between accountability and responsibility. Mm. Yeah. Accountability, if we have too much stress on accountability, mm. we become 
perhaps we run the risk of becoming punitive. In NVR, what we often look for is responsibility. You know, um, what does what does your responsibility look? But then reading Iris Marion Young, I sort of stumbled over the fact that that need for justice can also mean an accountability for past failures. But can we as therapists hold, for example, parents or uh, members of staff, as in this example, other caregivers, can we hold them accountable? Is that our job? But then I was thinking, well, what what do we do in child-focused NVR often? And what we do, I guess, is invite them to hold themselves accountable mm-hmm. for past uh, omissions or failures or just, you know, things in the past that the child struggled with as as their ongoing forward-looking responsibility. It's part of my responsibility to hold myself accountable to towards the child and others publicly and to change my behavior, to make a true commitment to change my behavior from here on in. And I guess there are many practical examples of that. I, I'm working with a father in individual therapy currently who came to the attention of the local authority and uh, the police after uh, an assault on his daughter in an altercation. And um, part of our work has been um, the use of a self-announcement, which he has distributed to family members And the core part of the self-announcement is an acknowledgement of uh, past behaviors of his that have been harmful and a commitment from here on in not to try to change, but to change. Commitments to try to change are not commitments. So I... and. I, I'm still I'm still struck by the fact that I've worked with uh, using self-announcements in such a way over the years, so many times, but I still never articulated the child's need for justice. When actually, this is not just safety doing. This is, in the words of Vicki Reynolds, this is justice doing in NVR, isn't it? Mm. And I think I know you're you're quite perplexed by this idea of um, the elephant in the room, and I think perhaps the elephant in the room is that the justice has always been there, you know, weaved into all the other categories. Yeah. So, and that what what we our conversation and what you've been thinking about, Peter, is is uncoupling that and giving it its own space, and I. I really liked, I mean, we often don't talk about failures because we're so often preoccupied towards solution. Yes. And I know Tom, the F word, the W word. (laughs) And I was always struck by something Tom Anderson said, which is sometimes we have to go through the dark tunnel 
mm-hmm. with some and not just look towards the light. And I think that idea of accountability of past failures that you describe mm. you know, with us doing that with that real compassion to the adults' past failures, the system's past failures, and how to that commitment to the child or to other important people in their lives to help them to not repeat that. Actually, what that, I imagine what, I mean, what I'm thinking is for the kid. I mean, we could be saving years of therapy here. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, this is one of the central tenets of systemic work as I've learned it is that if we can find something that is pivotal and brings about a transformative, in Carl Tom's words, or ultimately healing interpersonal pattern, then things can move very powerfully in a helpful direction. And yes, someone doesn't have to spend 27 years in therapy. (laughs) Absolutely. Peter, this has been such a rich conversation. I'm so pleased that you've you've added this category, and I think it's going to have a a, a, a really profound effect for our practitioners and for our training as well, because we have a lot of practitioners who who view NVR as um, quite weaponizing towards children. You know, I use that word purposefully, and I think this this um, real connection with justice seeking for our children and and that accountability for the adults will really i think serve is there any any final words you peter around this that you want to to say well i was just thinking you you sound a bit like melvin (laughs) (laughs) is there anything else that you would have liked i just wanted to make sure that we give this time but i'm also don't want to (laughs) Um, Well, there is one thing. I'm still puzzling over where, and you said the elephant in the room. I'm actually interested in the plural of that, elephants. (laughs) I think the room is full of elephants. (laughs) Um, So I'm thinking what were the inhibitions that initially led to many people and still do Uh, struggling with the adoption of NVR. And I think that it is the the action orientation of NVR, the fact that it is not child-centered. You know, Jim Wilson, from whom I um, took on the idea, was inspired by, uh, for the idea of a child focus, that's different from a child-centeredness, which places the child and what the child says and does at the center of all or most of our thinking. Um, But I I think, yeah, the way we've been socialized as therapists has sort of made us um, often reluctant to take relational risks in therapy, but not just between ourselves and our clients, but in the field out there, in the clients' lives out there. So I think 
too often we've seen therapy as happening in the therapy room, not in that whole area outside of it. And I think something similar may be at play with the idea around justice happening, again, not just in the therapy room, not just with me as a therapist, as a witness of the injustice that was done to a child, um, or ultimately also a parent, and that's another, there are many elephants there as well. Um, But I I think we sort of shy away sometimes from these things. I think um, it's sometimes difficult um, and we worry about um, moving out of positions of neutrality when sometimes we've got to be clear and there is an ethical line in the sand to be drawn. I think that that sounds like a really a, a clear point to to end this conversation or, or to to end but open up I think future conversations around these elephants in the room um, thank you so much Peter for for, do, for sharing this I think it's going to add a huge amount to the field again um, and so thank you very much um, and I'll just say goodbye from me for now <laughs>